0: So if you look at the population of the world in 1900, uh, it was about uh, 10% urban. Uh, If you look at it in 2010, uh, it's just slightly more than 50% urban. And by the middle of the century, we're probably going to be looking at about two-thirds to three-quarters of the global population uh, living in cities. There are emerging different and new ways of controlling a city without going into it, but none of that absolves us from the responsibility of, you know, we have to be able to do that when it's required.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Himble, editorial director at MWI, and we have a really exciting episode today. Over the past couple years, as most of you who follow what we're doing at MWI will know, we've spent a lot of time and energy on the particular set of military problems posed by cities. We know we can't escape major demographic, geopolitical, and other trends that combine to make it extremely likely that militaries will increasingly have to operate in urban areas in the future. But those urban areas pose a host of challenges that, frankly, we aren't ready for. That's why we launched the Urban Warfare Project, as an effort to wrestle with these challenges. And our latest initiative is the launch of our Urban Warfare Project podcast. It'll be hosted by John Spencer, who is currently MWI's Chair of Urban Warfare Studies, and whose work strives to help guide the Army, our sister services, and our Allied militaries to a place where we're ready for the problems cities will inevitably pose. In this first episode, John talks to David Kilcullen, who among his many other notable contributions to the way we think about war and the contemporary battle space, has sought to conceptualize the major global patterns that really drive this idea that cities, whether we like it or not, will be a dominant feature of the coming landscape of conflict and security. Before we get to the conversation, a couple quick notes. First, you'll be able to find future episodes of the Urban Warfare Project podcast on the MWI website. But you'll also be able to subscribe to it very soon wherever you get your podcasts. So be sure to check back often and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn so we can let you know when it's available. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, hope you enjoyed this very first episode of the Urban Warfare Project podcast.
2: Welcome to the Modern War Institute podcast. I have the privilege of speaking with uh, somebody who I'm a longtime fan of, uh, Dr. David Kilcullen. He's a bestselling author, a leading researcher in the field of unconventional and guerrilla warfare, uh, a former professional s- retired soldier, and a diplomat. Um, and for me particularly, uh, somebody has guided my urban warfare studies um, strongly with much of his writings. He's written many books. Um, Most of you, the audience will probably know them, but from The Accidental Guerrilla, Counterinsurgency, Out of the Mountain, uh, Blood Year, just to name a few, um, that have all been very influential in the U.S. military and actually multiple militaries. Dave, uh, really happy to have you, and thanks a lot for spending some time with us. Yeah,
0: thanks, Sean. And, uh, you know, right back at you, man, I'm a big fan of your work on on urban stuff, so it's great to... uh, to link up. And I'm looking forward to the chat.
2: Awesome. Um, So I know you're, you are an extremely busy person um, and rightfully so. And I know that you, you advise, you you continue to advise on everything from uh, insurgencies to understanding urban environments. And I think, you know, there's no surprise to the audience that I'd like to talk about the urban context, but I know that you do much more. Sure. Um, yeah. And I thought we'd start with out of the mountains because especially when I worked there at West Point, you know, out of the mountains really woke a lot of people up to the, the coming future of urban nature of warfare. And many of the points in there are, I see all the time as a citation for um, work that's going on now. And that has gone on in the past. I think the, the first question that I always see is about the four trends uh, almost called mega trends that you mentioned in your book: um, the population growth, urbanization, uh, littoralization, and a network con- connectivity. I was wondering if you could briefly explain those to the audience, really from your you know what you put in your book. But I, I know you've you've learned a lot since you wrote the book.
0: Yeah, and you know, <clears throat> out of the mountains was 2012, um, and it's it's almost as interesting looking at what's happened uh, since then than, uh, you know, the book itself. But, yeah, look, the four trends that I talk about are population, urbanization, uh, littoralization, which is the tendency for things to cluster on coastlines, um, and then connectivity. So, you know, population, it took all of human history until the year 1960 to get to uh, 3 billion people on the planet. In just the 40 years between 1960 and the year 2000, we doubled that to 6 billion. In the 18 years since then, we've added about 1.7 billion people to the planet and various organizations that project uh, urban, uh, project global population, suggest that we're probably gonna top out at around 9.5 billion people on the planet sometime uh, around the middle of the century. So what that tells you is that in the next 20 to 30 years, we're going to add to the total global population about as many people as emerged across the entire planet in all of human history up until 1960. So that's a pretty big deal um, for every aspect of life, not just conflict, but conflict isn't going to be uh, immune. second point is that most of those people are increasingly in cities. So it took again, all of human history until about April of 2008 for the planet to become uh, majority urban. So if you look at the population of the world in 1900, uh, it was about uh, 10% urban. Uh, If you look at it in 2010, uh, it's just slightly more than 50% urban, uh, which means that most people on the planet now live... uh, in urban environments, and by the middle of the century, we're probably going to be looking at about two-thirds to three-quarters of the global population uh, living in cities, many of whom are going to be living in um, uh, coastal cities, and that's the third big trend. Um, People, uh, economic activity, uh, a variety of other phenomena tend to cluster on coastlines, and about – Somewhat more than fifty percent of the population uh, of the planet uh, at the turn of the last century was living in coastal areas. But we've seen this increasing coastal tendency, where people are moving to large cities, which happen to be already on coastlines, and so you've got this clustering of of people and things on, on coasts. And then finally, uh, you know, urban coastal growing populations are increasingly connected. And this is a, a more new phenomenon. The first three trends have been around for literally centuries or millennia. Uh, but in the case of connectivity, we've seen a massive explosion in electronic connectivity since about the year 2000. Um, you know, Dramatic expansion of mobile phones, smartphones, the internet, uh, access to uh, television, Variety of other things is changing the degree of connectivity, and in fact, I would argue it's actually altering what we mean by a city. Uh, there are uh, there's a traditional way of thinking about a city, which is that it's you know a cluster of um, population, infrastructure, and uh, urbanized terrain, and that's how U.S. doctrine currently describes that in our military doctrine. But if you add in connectivity, you can end up with a situation where, you know, just to pick one random example, uh, the city of Mogadishu in Somalia. If you're just thinking in terms of uh, terrain, infrastructure, and population, Mogadishu is a city of about 300,000 people, about halfway up the Horn of Africa. But if you add in the information layer, turns out that significant parts of the urban system of Mogadishu are actually in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, in parts of Sweden, uh, in Rotterdam, uh, in a variety of European cities where there's significant Somali populations who are linked now by cell phones, by internet, by um, financial transfers and a bunch of other things back to their home city of Mogadishu. So you get this kind of overlapping of cities where the urban footprint Now is dramatically different to just the physical terrain of the city.
2: Yeah. Um, So why is it? I mean, most of that, um, and I get this pushback a lot, and I say it: all those trends could be good things, since you know, (laughs) urbanization and economic um, thriving sometimes go go hand in hand. When you have an increase in technology, you have an increase in urbanization, more workforce some countries handle that fine and that's increased size of city can mean increase in GDP. It can mean a lot of good things. Why, why is it a bad thing that the military would have to worry about?
0: Well, uh, I actually say in the book that it, it is a good thing. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the rise of urbanization, uh, has coincided with dramatic improvements in public health, in, uh, women's freedom, in economic prosperity, and a whole bunch of things that are, you know, uh, undeniably very good and i think urbanization in itself is very much a good thing and this leads to some of the other work that i that i talk about in in the book and that we've worked on since which is the idea that it isn't in fact urbanization that's a problem it's when you get rapid or unplanned urban growth which exceeds in terms of its pace or its scale uh, exceeds the resources that are available to Uh, a city to handle that so it's not the urbanization itself that's a problem it's the rapid change that creates stresses and strains in an urban system that can lead to uh, corruption you know violence a variety of other things and that's again why the military needs to be concerned Um, not because urbanization is bad but because we will increasingly find ourselves operating in an urban environment and so we need to be prepared for that
2: yeah, and that, you know, if anybody follows me, they know that I'm always harping on that. But most people don't know the, you know, whether you see a, a military changing towards these global trends or not is is a, one of the biggest questions. And, and I'll get to that. Like you said, this book came out a, a while ago, and definitely before much of the urban conflict we've seen across the Middle East with ISIS and other um, you know the fall of certain governments and you detail some of those in your book blood year but what have you has anything changed in your mind um from these four trends or the implications of them or is just all that's happened so far just really uh you know this is what we predicted
0: no i mean so when i when i wrote the book uh it actually grew out of a series of lectures that i used to give at the nato uh defense college in rome And I started giving those lectures uh, around 2010 when we were in the process of withdrawing from Afghanistan. And I I got very tired of lecturing um, students who would say two incompatible things, right? On the one hand, they'd say the war in Afghanistan is ending, and that obviously turned out to be pretty premature. Uh, But they would also say, well, the future of warfare is going to be a lot like Afghanistan. And I'd say, you know, Afghanistan is... Landlocked, it's remote. It's one of the least urbanised um, cities, uh, uh, countries on the planet. Until that time, until about twenty fifteen, most of the conflict in Afghanistan had been rural, not urban. So, what makes you think that it's typical? You know, what makes you think that it's it's going to be representative of what we see in the future? And nobody really had an answer to that, which is partly why I started looking in great detail um, at these trends. I think looking back now at a distance of about six years from when I finished uh, writing the book, I definitely called a couple of things correctly and a couple of things wrong. Um, One of the things that I called correctly was the the growth in urban conflict. I mean, the vast majority of conflict that we've seen since that time has taken place in or around urban environments, uh, most particularly Raqqa, Mosul, um, Tikrit, Ramadi, uh, you know, I, could, I could go on, there's a dozen battles that have happened that have been primarily urban uh, in, in the fight against ISIS. Even in Libya, the majority of, um, which is a desert country, the vast majority of fighting that's happened uh, since 2011 has happened in coastal uh, urbanized uh, environments. So that's, that's very much a, um, you know, a good call based on the, the data that we see now. I, I think I overemphasized in the book, mega cities and a lot of the data that came out just a year or two after i finished the book suggested that in fact the cities that were least able to cope with rapid urbanization were not the mega cities but were actually rapidly growing small cities in the developing world particularly in coastal africa uh latin america and asia so i think if i were to you know look back on on the on the book now i'd say Everything we said about megacities was right. It just wasn't the most prominent of the concerns we should have been focusing on. Megacities are a different environment from pure urban operations. And what you might call mega urban warfare is actually a whole different skill set for a variety of reasons that we can get into. And I think it's important to understand that, but I don't think it is going to be the most common or the most typical challenge. I think it's going to be medium to small sized cities that we're going to be dealing with. Um, one that I absolutely did not uh, emphasize enough in the book was the speed of the connectivity explosion. And I thought that I'd grasped it and I'd written a lot in the book about the initial years, or initial months of the Arab Spring uh, and what it was telling us about the new military techniques that were available because of. Uh, a connectivity explosion, but even though I, th- I, I put a lot of effort into describing that, I still underestimated quite how fast it was going to be and quite how transformative. Uh, and, you know, again, we can talk about that in more detail, but I think the application of military-grade precision and the emergence of what you might call infokinetic maneuver, the ability to maneuver simultaneously in electronic and physical space, uh, which I sort of predicted as, Long-term possibilities in the book have like already happened, you know. So we we sort of um, we I, I I underestimated how quickly that would be.
2: Yeah. So I, and I've tried to study this myself on, you know, some of these cities, these large cities, like you know, they've been there for millennia, and there's there's been problems, but never. I think the rise of problems we've seen, and I try to you know take Rio as an example of. You know, it, it has had ungoverned spaces for for a very long time since really the creation of the favelas. But what was the tipping point that's caused you know security to spiral in so many of these cities to the point where military action is necessary? You think it's the connectivity and the access to information?
0: Yeah, well, this question of tipping points is really important. I I think connectivity is a critical factor, but I think one of the key issues, and I'm looking at this now in a research project, uh is how cities adapt to stress. And you could sort of talk about two modes. There's a mode where a city can deal with stresses through its own existing resources, maybe by redistributing resources or uh, becoming more efficient and more effective in the way it uses its current resources. But then you will get to a tipping point where it's just not feasible to do that anymore. And the city will undergo a, a rapid shift and a a restructuring or a change in the way the city operates, and that can be a positive thing if it leads to the city adapting and becoming, you know, what some people now call anti-fragile, where it grows more more robust through stress. Uh, but it can also lead to to city collapse and the emergence of what um, Naval uh, War College Professor Richard Norton talks about as a feral city, yeah. a city that's still coll- connected and functioning, but it's it's ungoverned.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, a funny aside, I I, I love uh, uh, Professor Norton's feral city analogy just as a, a you know, kind of like failed state. It gives everybody a common reference point to talk about the environment. But I was at a conference um, and nobody had heard of the term. And for some reason, the term offended the group of really? academics. Yeah, because it's, you know, a feral cat, you know, somehow it offended this group of, I was really surprised. It was, a, it was like 200 people. And yeah, uh,
0: I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I don't know if you, if you guys that you're talking to are biologists, but the concept of ferality in uh, evolution and biology is not meant to be um, uh, derogatory. It's just a description of what happens to a domesticated organism or species when it um, goes back into a. Uh, sort of condition of uh, of wildness yeah and there are a number of characteristics you know it gets bigger it gets shaggier (laughs) you know it gets uh a little more um uh, aggressive It, it tends to have a higher fertility rate there's a bunch of things that happen and you see that with with organisms i think the the real issue is a lot of people are pretty uncomfortable applying biological analogies to cities um and i think that's something that's worth unpacking as we look at it i mean is a city an organism or is that just a metaphor or is it better to describe it as an ecosystem, you know, rather than a, an organism? And those are real, you know, scientifically valid questions that we probably don't have a computationally valid answer for yet. That's why, you know, people are still researching them. Can I just jump in one, one other thing? Yeah. Though? I, so in, the, in Out of the Mountains, there's one key factor that I did not include. And the primary reason that I didn't include it was because we didn't have great data at the time on the effects of it. In the time frame that we're looking at, and that was climate change. Um, so I touch on climate change in the book, and I talk about it, but I don't describe it as a megatrend, uh, and I don't make any projections about its likely impact. And part of that is because at the time when people were talking about climate change, uh, I know this is eight years ago, a lot of the discussion was around sea level rise, and if you look at the data for the 2030 to 2050 time frame, which is where the book is focused, there really wasn't much of a consensus on, on what that would be. You know, people were talking about the possibility of a metre to three metres of sea level rise globally by 2100, but nobody could put any kind of firm data on, uh, you know, what we were likely to see in 2040 or 2050. Now what we see is actually a, a bit different. What we see is that the effects of climate change in the high north, in the Arctic, are pretty obvious. Um, there, There's definitely uh, some changes in um, movement patterns and agriculture patterns and desertification in a bunch of developing countries as a result of climate factors. And whether or not you think that those are human caused is kind of irrelevant at this point because the data is reasonably clear that like something's happening. So in subsequent work, I've done a lot of work on this idea of climate change, whether it's human caused or not, and how it can affect um, uh, urban development. And I think the principal thing to think about for us as military planners uh, in looking at that is water. Um, and it's it's pretty clear in the conflict data that water shortages in an urban environment are a major trigger of urban violence. Uh, one of the things I wrote about in Out of the Mountains, and I was the first academic researcher to write about this, was the linkage between drought conditions and water riots in Syria and the outbreak of the Syrian civil war. About a year after I published the book, uh, there was some media reporting on that and more data came out about it, which tended to confirm a lot of the anecdotal evidence that we'd heard from Syrians on the ground uh, when I was writing the book. But I think for for us as military guys thinking about uh, an urban system, looking at water availability, uh, is a really important factor when you think about the impact of uh, of climate on on cities
2: yeah it's fascinating i i sometimes mention the and it, it seems common sense but it depends on i guess if you take the long view if, if just natural disasters you know your hurricane um, season or is because of the cities moving more and more coastal does that put out more and more people at threat to just natural disasters in general or is that you know doesn't not supported by evidence
0: No I mean I think I think it is supported by evidence and I think you can even go with a uh, uh, let's assume for the sake of argument uh zero sea level rise and zero change in the frequency of storms as a result of uh climate change and you know just let's just take climate change completely out of the equation the mere fact that you now have literally you know, billions more people living in low elevation coastal zones uh, in coastal urban environments makes um, hurricanes, storms and so on more damaging just because there's more people living in at-risk areas. There's an interesting Wall Street Journal article just a week or two ago uh, which went through the rising cost of hurricanes uh, and demonstrated that, you know, whether or not you believe in um, man-caused climate change, the data is very clear on the rising impact of coastal weather events and that's just purely because there's more people there i mean the mediterranean basin as an example between 1970 and the year 2000 40 million people moved to coastal cities in uh in the mediterranean basin so that's southern europe and north africa uh, so by definition there's just more people yeah. uh, at risk and more property uh you know more industrial installations uh more things for us to to worry about you know
2: yeah I mean, it, it, for me, it, it's a clear message, but sometimes I, I, I meet resistance. So I want to go back to the the understanding the city. Now yeah, you, your your book and your writing was one of the first ones that turned me on to, you know, the the early on urban um, studies work of looking at a city as an organism, and just like you said, you get pushback. Uh, I got I've got an internal pushback, just saying that. You know, the biggest reason you, you don't look at a city as an organism, or I've, I've tried to say a human organism, is that it's really hard to kill a city. And we've tried you know, across even ancient history. No matter what, if you try to kill a city, it's really hard to do. Now, you can call it you know, unacceptable damage. But you know, in all your studies, and I know it's, it's a, big com- a big topic, but how can people understand cities better?
0: Yeah, well, so I, I am actually a big favor, a big, a big fan of um, uh, biological systems analysis when looking at at cities. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's important to uh, to draw out a couple of sort of fairly academic points. Right. One is one of them is that when we talk about a city, we're talking about um, essentially a system of flows. Right. Um, uh, commodities, people, energy, uh, information, f- you know, fuel, air, water that are flowing into and through uh, an urban environment. Now, one way of thinking about that is as an organism, right, as in the city is an organism. Um, and that leads you to this idea that I talk about a lot in Out of the Mountains about uh, urban metabolism, which is not my idea, it's an idea that comes from uh, an ecologist called Abel Wallman who wrote about it in the 1960s. Uh, and when you think about a city as a system, uh, as, a, as an organism, organisms tend to be self-balancing. They, they seek something we call homeostasis, which is where the city tries to preserve itself or the organism tries to preserve itself and it seeks balance and it seeks to uh, uh, effectively absorb all of its inputs, turn them into biomass or energy, Uh, It produces waste products, and then it has to deal with those waste products. Uh, And the argument of the urban metabolism model is that um, when a city is unable to effectively process all those toxic waste products, you get build-ups, and those might be in the forms of pollution or crime or violence or whatever, and and that's the set of issues you're dealing with. There's a subtle but significant distinction between thinking about a city as an organism... And thinking about it as an ecosystem. So, an ecosystem has multiple competing or collaborating um, organisms in it. It has uh, a food web, you know, with predators and prey. It has a number of different systems, and it's not an emerging. Sorry, it's not a not a closed system necessarily. It uh, nor is it a a system where the bigger the input you put into it. The bigger the pushback you're going to get. It is, it's an emergent system where small inputs can have giant impacts, where you can see, you know, a phase change across the entire system depending on uh, the environment. And I think that the argument that it's almost impossible to kill a city, I would sort of beg to differ with that on historical grounds. I mean, there are actually plenty of examples of cities being killed. Um, but I think it's a valid observation that. Uh, it's a lot harder to kill an ecosystem than it is to kill any one organism in the ecosystem. So if you think about a city as an ecosystem, um, I think that's a, a another way of thinking about it. The most important thing about biological analogies, though, is to ask ourselves the question, is this really an analogy or is the city in some real meaningful sense actually alive? Um, because if it is an analogy, there are limits to how far you can take it. Uh, Whereas if a city really is in some meaningful sense an actual ecosystem, then it should be possible to do what you might call a dynamic urban intelligence preparation of the environment where you actually map and study and observe that ecosystem in real time and figure out how to affect it. And I think that becomes really critical for us in the military when we think about how to protect or conversely how to damage an enemy city uh, because the scale of these urban environments now is at the point where to try to control a city by occupation is just a non-starter. So we need to be thinking about how do we control or protect or influence a city, not through occupation, but by affecting the flows into and out of the city uh, and dealing with it as that sort of ecosystem rather than just a single undifferentiated block of urban terrain, which is how our older doctrine tends to think about it.
2: Yeah. So I, um, this brings up a, a really good point that I, I, I wanted to ask you about. Um, you've said that cities are sponges that soak up troops, not to steal the headline um, mm. of your article. So as, and this is the pushback you also get, and I'm sure you've gotten it from the military too, no matter what size your military is, if you compare it to the size of the city, um, some people try to say that's just just not a feasible environment. We're not, we shouldn't plan to go in there. It's just not going to happen. And, as most militaries and all the U S is on a slight uptick, but most militaries are for most governments for, for smaller militaries, how then are militaries going to prepare for operations in these very large cities? And it can be, you know, smaller, not mega cities, of course, but smaller cities as they continue to get smaller.
0: Yeah. Well, so I think firstly, you know, to to illustrate the issue of um, cities being sponges, when the Russians attacked Berlin in 1945, as, as most of our listeners will know, they put a battalion down each side of every street. Um, and, you know, when the, the Red October um, factory was being attacked in Stalingrad, uh, it was a brigade objective, right, one building. Uh, and so the, the traditional way of approaching the urban environment is really to throw very large numbers of troops into relatively small pieces of physical terrain that soak up troops because there's just so many spaces that have to be controlled and, and dealt with, you know, in that 3d, uh, urban environment. And for years, people have been trying to figure out how do we do it with less troops? And I think that's super important, right? I mean, you know, one of the case studies I use in the, um, uh, in the, the book is, is Karachi and and Mumbai. When I talk about the Mumbai attacks, both of those cities are about 22 million people. Um, you could put the entire U.S. Army in either of those cities and most people wouldn't even know you're there. You know, there just isn't enough troops in the world to to secure uh, these cities if you take a traditional approach of putting one soldier on every street corner. Um, But I think the the answer to how to influence and control a city without those numbers is actually given to a spy, Al-Qaeda, right? Um, When... uh, Abu Musab al-Zakawi, the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq, was killed in 2006. One of the pieces of pocket litter that was picked up from his, his, his body was a map of Baghdad showing the belts around Baghdad, the belts of agricultural and, uh, and satellite settlement around the city, and showing the flows in and out of the city and the MSRs going into and out of it. And what we used to call the com- commuter insurgency when a lot of us were in Iraq was an al-Qaeda idea of how to influence a city the size of Baghdad when you only have a few thousand uh, fighters. And they tried to do that by effectively occupying and penetrating the peri-urban space around the city, controlling influence, uh, controlling access into and out of the city, and effectively trying to choke the city off in key ways by uh, denying flows into and out of it. One of the things that I, I did in, during the surge in, in Baghdad was worked with a really stellar... Um, a guy called J.B. Burton, uh, as some of your your listeners may know, uh, who controlled northwest Baghdad. And a lot of what J.B. was doing uh, and Marines like um, Joe Latoile out in uh, the Zidon west of Baghdad were also doing was trying to figure out the relationships between different rural villages outside Baghdad and the population of the city itself. And if you looked at different parts of Baghdad, you could draw links between the villages or outlying towns that many people originally came from and the districts in Baghdad where they settled. And I think that sort of flow modeling, which was pretty hard back in 2007, is increasingly easier now precisely because of the connectivity explosion, which allows us to track those relationships. So we may be approaching an environment where we have a number of military options going into a city, many of which may not involve putting troops on the ground at all. Um, You know, imagine a circumstance where uh, the major airport or port of a city uh, is um, serviced by a labour force and that labour force is drawn from the poorer population of the city, which is pretty typical. And many people in those poorer neighbourhoods are recent immigrants to the city and many of them are under the thumb of gang leaders or, um, you know, street um, toughs that control given areas. It's a pretty common circumstance in, in many developing world cities. Uh, turns out that the the street gang leader who controls a particular workforce that might run the port, maybe his family moved from a remote village 20, 30 years ago, and maybe you're putting an ODA on the ground 100 miles away from the city to talk to the guy's grandmother and say, hey, we'd like to talk to your grandson, uh, and then you're you're actually in phone contact with a you know, a group of guys that that control a a key part of the city without ever going in it. Or maybe you're not even doing it physically. Maybe you're doing it remotely, um, reaching out over the internet or through diaspora populations to engage with people that are uh, able to affect the way that a city operates. I don't think any of that gets us away from the need to operate physically in an urban environment, though. It's like a fire department saying, hey, we've cracked the code. The solution here is fire prevention right well okay got it the solution is definitely fire prevention but when buildings are on fire you guys are the people we're looking to to go in and deal with them so it's not a it's not an answer for the military to say it's too hard we're not going to do it uh we have to have a plan for how we're going to do it because you know to you know quote from that movie um a few good men you know who's going to do it you know you like you know we're the ones that have to do it when when the shit hits the fan to use that expression so you know i think um There are emerging different and new ways of controlling a city without going into it, but none of that absolves us from the responsibility of, you know, we have to be able to do that when it's required.
2: So, I mean, I could talk to stuff for hours, um, but given what you just said about, okay, you need to just accept the mission set, accept the future. Have you found that either the U.S. military or other militaries have grasped that and are making significant changes or, you know, it's just the same lesson over and over again as you, you know, sit in on a war game or um, try to help and advise different militaries?
0: Uh, Look, I think the U.S. in particular is is pretty ahead of the curve and the other Five Eyes nations are as well. And, I mean, nobody wants to do urban, right, but we're sort of embracing the suck, as it were, you know, And, and so I think it's important to recognize that us and our allies are actually pretty far ahead uh, on this one. The other country that has really done a lot of thinking about this and, frankly, I, th- I think is, is, in fact, pretty good, even though they come from a totally different space to, to us, is actually Russia. Um, I mean, the Russians had a very searing experience in the 90s in Chechnya with two major urban battles in 94 and 99 uh, in Grozny. And they showed dramatic learning ability between in the five years between those two battles. And since then, they've engaged in, uh, obviously, some pretty heavy urban conflict in Syria since 2015. And we see a lot of learning coming from them about how to operate uh, in the urban environment. And the urban is not um, an easy environment. And the traditional Russian approach has been to just remove the city, right? Like shell it and then bulldoze it. Yeah, and then I mean, if you
2: look at the second... You know, Battle of Grozny. Me. I mean, that was the big one of the bigger lessons was okay, don't fall into the trap of getting sucked in there. And, you know, prep it with some fire, a lot of fire actually right. beforehand.
0: Yeah, correct. And I, a lot of the fighting that's happened in in Ukraine since 2014 has also given a lot of lessons to the Russians about how to operate in uh urbanized terrain so i think there is a lot to learn from watching them operate uh, and i think that they're certainly uh one of the more advanced uh nations in terms of thinking about it the other one that i, I don't think you can talk about urban without talking about these guys is the israelis uh yeah. israelis have done a huge amount of work on understanding urban conflicts uh and understanding how to operate in the urban there are things the israelis do that we just can't copy um for any number of reasons, you know, political. Uh, but I think the biggest reason is that Israel is very small, right? It's about the size of, you know, greater New York City. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one single operating area that they're incredibly familiar with. Uh, but I think a lot of the techniques that Israelis have pioneered in terms of um, use of reconnaissance, uh, the use of combat engineers in the urban environment, uh, what they call infestation, which is moving around fully inside the the, the urban structure, um, you know are, are definitely worth studying and thinking about how to apply to uh, our operating environment
2: so uh, that was a, what was actually my next question is you know, the study so there's you know there is the preparation for urban operations and adapting as militaries. Um, but sometimes the, the role of studying urban environments either rests within the intelligence community, if you're in the military or, you know, in academia. Um, you know, I you know, have only, haven't been in this space that long, but some people have argued that, you know, as writ large, especially academics, not many people have an urban lens um, and some of that's historical, just in the evolution of the primary theories of whether it's social sciences, international relations, political science. Um, they don't have, you know, foundational theories that are impacted by urbanization. Possibly because of the, it's a, a more recent, rapid trend. Um, do you see enough study going into this problem? Um, or should there be more both from within the military and outside the military um, that have that commit to whether it's an urban geopolitics or, or just having an urban lens on academic uh, rigor?
0: Yeah. I, look, I, I actually, think there is a lot of academic rigor going into this. Um, you can see a lot of stuff uh, in the urban studies community uh, law enforcement and um, research agencies of various kinds. Uh, you've got a lot of think tanks uh, looking at it. What I would say, though, with with a bit of um, sort of hindsight, so, you know, I first became uh, heavily engaged in uh, urban stuff uh, about 25 years ago uh, when the, the, the Black Hawk Down battle in Mogadishu took place. I was a captain at the time. Um, I was training to do a bunch of military advisory work in Southeast Asia, and many of us were transfixed by that battle that happened in October of uh, 1993. And in fact, what that battle did was it actually prompted a really major look at urban operations in the US. Um, So you can go back to the mid-1990s, and many of the things that we are talking about now were extraordinarily familiar to people Um, looking at this stuff, you know, 25 years ago. Uh, You know, by the late 1990s, there was a lot of work going on in the U.S. Army looking at Chechnya, uh, Bosnia, looking at um, uh, what happened in Mogadishu and a bunch of other places and thinking about how to do urban operations. There was an urban operations journal. Uh, The Marine Corps actually published a, uh, a document called Chaos in the Littorals looking at urban, littoral environments. So a lot of this stuff, it's like back to the future, right? We, we were looking at this in the late 1990s. because what happened was 9-11, right? So when 9-11 happened, um, we had been, at that time, had been focused a lot on urban. We effectively dropped that and went straight to CT. And many of us focused on Afghanistan, unconventional warfare, countering terrorism. That became the thing for very good reasons. I mean, that was the mission. Uh, and it was only once we invaded Iraq in 03 and things rapidly, you know, went to shit and we ended up doing uh, the two battles of Fallujah in 2004 that we yeah. started to turn back to the urban environment as a really critical uh, uh, operating space. So, you know, that would be the, uh, you know, the, I think the issue is that we, we were looking at urban a lot, but we turned away to look at other stuff. And it was after the... Um, probably about 2010, 2011, that, you know, me and others started to turn back to urban. Uh, and in the intervening, you know, 10 years, or we were focused on other stuff, a lot of progress was made in the urban studies world by architects and urban planners and urban ecologists and a bunch of other people looking at cities as systems. And so bringing those two strands of research together, I think has been really important in advancing us to the stage that we're at now in terms of our thinking about urban but of course you're talking about groups that are very different in their political outlook that see cities and see urbanization very differently and there's a lot of sort of mutual misunderstanding and you know the moment that a military planner sits down with a urban ecologist both of them are kind of squinting looking for the moral flaw and the other dude you know and I think there's a there's a lot of suspicion to overcome as we think about uh, how to take it to the next level.
2: Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, one of my last questions, and because I, I take advantage of having you for a few more moments, is that I get asked a lot. I get calls um, you know, from whether it's back at West Point, or undergraduate research, or the you know, Army War College, where people want to look at urbanization, but they want their you know want a little help narrowing down their research question on you know what hasn't been addressed or yeah. w- what what really needs addressed more, and you know so I'm talking to you know, t- talking to you, I want to ask you the question of, you know, what would be your recommendation for a research question or research area that could use some more look at?
0: So my my top three. The first one would be around this question of are cities better understood as organisms or better understood as ecosystems? Um, and this is a modeling question, right? How do you understand a city under stress? Uh, and I think the military application of that is building a dynamic urban IPB tool, right, that allows you to look at um, uh, a city. I mean, if you think about a traditional uh, a traditional IPB and intelligence preparation of the battlefield as a picture, right, like a multi-layered yep. picture of a city, what we need here is a video or an ultrasound, right, that allows us to see in real-time dynamic changes in an urban environment. Or maybe it's better to think about it as a graphic equalizer. You know, if I dial this up, what happens over here, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a... That, that's a critical area of, of research in the intelligence field uh, and the modeling field. Um, the second one is really about um, the connectivity explosion. And it's something that I call information kinetic maneuver or infokinetic maneuver. It used to be, uh, you know, probably up until about five years ago that most Western theorists thought about cyber war as if it was going to be like a standalone form of conflict that was separate from physical conflict. What we're seeing in the urban space in the last five to ten years is not that, right? We're seeing that cyber is now a sort of adjunct manoeuvre space that exists alongside physical manoeuvre and also alongside fires. And I think in the future, as a ground commander, you're going to turn to one side and talk to your fires controller To the other and talk to your, you know, cyber controller, and you're going to be running a simultaneous maneuver in information space and physical space. And when you bring that fourth layer, the information layer, to the urban triad, uh, you realize that you know the information maneuver around a future city may not actually be happening physically in the city, it might be happening somewhere else, uh, and so that's a that's a critical area of, 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 examination. And actually a number of guys, um, uh, have looked at this, uh, in great detail. Um, probably the most recent, uh, was, uh, Um, Greg Conti and and Dave Raymond, who are guys associated with the Modern Warfare Institute, who wrote a book called On Cyber, you know, an operational art for cyber conflict, which I think is a brilliant book that everybody should read. Um, And I I think the reason that this is an urban issue is because connectivity tends to be urban, right? That's where the cell phone networks are densest. It's where the internet is, you know. So um, that's why there's this overlap. Yeah, definitely. Um, And then I think my third area of research that I would push on is How do you operate in a city with a small size force without getting sucked into that urban sponge and defeated in detail? Uh, And that's about, you know, intelligence preparation. It's about airborne maneuver. It's about autonomous systems. Uh, It's about technologies that allow you to secure a space without having to put a human in it. You know, there's a bunch of different um, technology and techniques and – concepts that have to go into an effective form of future urban maneuver and we still have not cracked the code on that we're still thinking about it as if it's a sort of updated version of phantom fury in 2004 and frankly we can't afford to do that you know those kinds of operations do work but they take a very long time they soak up a lot of troops and they're very casualty intensive and we're just not going to have the capacity to do that in all the places where we need to do it
2: yeah, and there, and I often point to those operations. as just most people forget the political pressure that was on that operation. Of okay, stop what you're doing. The, you're causing too much damage just because of the connection to the outside world and the, the blowback of political pressure. Um, the the planned operation you might want to do may not be political or feasible.
0: Right. So, yeah, now, it's extraordinarily interesting if you contrast the operation in Raqqa and Mosul last year with the operation you know. 10 years before 13 years before that in Fallujah and you realize how politicians have actually been forced to become very different in the way they think about urban operations compared to at the beginning of the Iraq war in particular so i think people are catching up to it but you know as military professionals it's not our job to you know track with everybody else we've got to be ahead of the curve thinking about the problems that other people haven't quite realized yet and I think that's uh, you know that's a key element of the of the urban problem.
2: Great. Well, well, Dave, I, I could do, I could literally talk this all day, <laughs> and it's what they actually you know tell me to do. But I know I'm conscious of your time.
0: Thanks, Jim.
1: Hey, thanks again for listening to this special episode of the MWI podcast. Before you go, remember to find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn to stay up to date on our new articles, podcast episodes, and research. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take just a second and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right, thanks again.